Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of PQA Panel Talks. Once again, I'm your host, Mike Kerchuk. Uh, to begin, though, I, I hope you're all home, safe and sound, and practicing solid social distancing methods through your days. So on to our topic. As with many other companies in tech, we are lucky enough that we are capable of moving all of our staff across the country wholesale into remote working. We were lucky as an organization. In one major way, we have many clients that do remote work for. Even though remote for us generally meant working out of one of our offices on a client project, we were often including our own team members for more than one office as we worked remotely with clients. So we were tooled up and already using a solid suite of collaboration tools. For some companies, this transition happened so quickly that people went home on a Friday and just never came back. Transitioning like this so quickly without advanced preparation has created some challenges um, that mostly we've already all worked through. But what we wanted to talk to you about here today is whether or not this transition to remote operations has injected uncertainty and risk into our testing. Has there been an impact quality? Is there a potential impact quality? We want to know where this additional risk might be and what can we do to mitigate it. So normally in these panels, we kind of hold them um, like a regular panel where there's question and answer dialogues and I ask questions and, and, and my experts answer it. Today, I think we're going to handle it a little more as an open discussion as we brainstorm some ideas and scenarios that will hopefully relate to your own situation or at least give you a jumping off point to do your own risk analysis and mitigation. Joining me here today, I have Nat Couture. Nat, of course, has been on our panels before. He has 15 plus years in technology and testing and has deep skills. He's also worked remotely a number of times across his career. Additionally, we have with us Jonathan Duncan. He is our VP of Customer Success. He has more than 20 years in technology, and uh, most of that is in testing in some form or another. A lot of his working has also been remote. So I think that, that all together, we're going to be able to provide some really good uh, discussion that we have here. So uh, welcome, Nat, and welcome, John. Thanks, Mike. Great intro. So let's get started just sort of with the idea is, is there an additional risk? Is this just the same work the next day? What do you think, Nat? Well, I mean... I think it's going to introduce new new risks. I think communication is definitely more challenging remotely, or is certainly the adjustment to doing it more remotely. So I think, you know, getting clarity in your requirements, getting clarity in the tasks that you're trying to accomplish is certainly more challenging in a remote scenario. I think once you're used to it, it's not so bad. But I think the transition to full-time remote over a longer period of time will cause some some issues and ambiguities. That, that lead to issues in quality in software deliverables, for sure. That's one of the things that, that I keep hitting on for myself is communication. It used to be when you were all sitting in office that if you had a question about something, you just piped up and asked it out loud and someone had an answer. Or you were walking, seeing someone said, oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about this. How has working remotely changed that? Is it, is it better because now someone you can always just type to someone or is it different because you don't have the opportune remembrance? So I, it might have some benefits too, as the introverts in the conversations play a slightly bigger role maybe in remote scenarios, like through Slack, through email channels, through even conferencing opportunities. I think introverts feel a little more comfortable than in, in person where there's potentially confrontational scenarios. So, you know, maybe there's a shift in the amount of introverts that speak up and, and bring their opinions earlier in the process. So maybe there's some areas where things improve. I think generally, I think it leads when people aren't used to writing every little detail and documenting things well and having that clear line of sight to a person to hash things out in person, I think things get omitted. And I think 
you know, people are going to just make more assumptions as, as a result instead of, you know, having that walk over and ask someone, they're just going to, ah, I think this is what they mean and they're going to implement something. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. And if you, if you sort of take that one step further, so I think right, some people, their default is to pick up the phone and talk to people. Others like myself, I enjoy the being around people. So the getting up and walking over to Matt's desk um, to just talk about something and draw it on a whiteboard was how I preferred to work. Right? We've got to change things now, right? So some of that is around, we need to come up with better and creative ways to get that same whiteboard type feeling so that we can collaborate and be able to see things and understand what Nat or I are talking about and truly be able to give that feedback um, type thing. So I, th I think there's still room for improvement um, for us, for sure. We've come a long way in the six weeks and learned a whole lot of things along the way, um, myself specifically about sort of working in that remote environment. More to come still, but definitely been a learning. And uh... um, not not to mention, John, it dragged you kicking and streaming into signing up and using Slack. Yes, it did. <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree with what you guys are saying. I think that there's there's a possibility that what be working remotely can do is push people more towards one on one communications, which is really good, and I think that's really positive. Like as soon as you have that question, you should put it in the Slack so you're not trying to remember it because you won't have as many opportune moments. But I think that if we go too far into that one-on-one -on -one communication, everyone will think, oh, excellent. I'm talking to all of these people all the time. But what you're not going to get is the idea buildup and the idea exchange that comes out of, of group conversations. So I think that it's important that leaders, leads, managers, whatever, ensure that there's enough conferencing, group conversations, whatever, where you talk about what's going on and you talk about what you're doing. And I know that sounds just like a stand-up, that, that the opportunity is there to have those ideas where you might have input or you might hear something that might impact you. And on the other foot, so I mean, that's leads should be providing that opportunity. On the other foot, I think that individuals need to make sure that when they're giving an update in those types of meetings, they're not giving short phrases that says everything's good onto the next person. We need you to talk about what you've been working on and what you're going to work on in a little bit more detail, because these are the opportunities that people have to grab onto that and think, okay, yeah, that actually might impact me. Whereas before, you get that by overhearing conversations, you get that water cooler conversation, you get that through other things, right? So it's putting yourself a little more out there, providing a little bit more detail, but making sure that the communication is there. And just to follow on to that around the group conversation, there's people thinking about it for sure and the advantages, right? But we've long known that teams can accomplish more than any one individual. So there is always the risk if we don't pay attention to it that now that we're all working at home on our own with less communication maybe than around that water cooler, that the group conversations really can keep that team together and have a team atmosphere that it's not 170 individuals working. It's still a larger team trying to accomplish larger goals. All right, so now comes the hard point where we really have to try and, and provide value. So let's say that this has come to pass for an organization, that their communication has broken down a little bit. People are taking requirements as they were originally written and without having that opportune clarity provided for that. So we're developing on requirements that don't get a little bit more clarity into them. So now we're getting requirements that aren't working. So that's, that's potential for reduced quality. What might that look like? And what can we do to mitigate that kind of problem? Since that's a core QA task everywhere, right? 
Yeah, I mean, mitigation. I mean, I think it, I don't think it's any different in a remote scenario. I think proper conversation around vetting any ambiguity in the requirements up front and, and giving people the opportunity. So, I mean, this happens probably more so in the story grooming sessions and so on, as long as there's good participation on all fronts and not just giving you yes man answers or and properly investigating any potential opportunities for misinterpretation of what's supposed to be built. So I, I agree, and I think that will help people going forward, but there might already have been some of this, or by the time you realize that your communication paths aren't working as solidly as you thought, there might already have been some of this impacted. So I think that, that the way I might help mitigate that is imparting extra understanding in project leads, scrum masters, people who are in charge of the schedule, that QA's testers should be spending a little bit of time, a little bit more time, a little bit more focus on looking at the requirement as written and ensuring not only that the feature that's been produced does that, but that other possible interpretations of it haven't also snuck in. And we all do that, testers all do that all the time, but I think that we should give ourselves a little more leniency to spend the time on that and then also have our leaders, our leads, make sure that we have that time to do it. Yeah, and it, it's really about historically, and we, I know all three of us on this call believe bring testing and bring QA as far to the forefront as you can. Really, in this type of environment, it is more important now than ever before, right? To have those folks in there with the extra set of eyes before somebody goes down and makes an assumption. Let the testers in there start asking the questions of why this and what about that type thing to try to root some of that out earlier before it sort of goes along and is forgotten along the way. The next thought is there's a lot of companies that have had to react quickly to COVID and et cetera. And by that, I mean, they've had to change a website to make sure that you're dealing with, uh, with COVID. We have one client that does a certification thing, a security certification thing for us. And they've always been highly, highly manual, i.e. they send out a PDF that's four to six pages long, you fill it out, you print it out, you uh, send that back in, they take this written document, enter it in and, and do some scanning. And that's, that's a 10 business day turnaround once they receive it. Well, when we went COVID, they didn't, they obviously didn't want to have that document in their hand if they could avoid it. And so that's when we found out that they had in parallel to this, they'd been working on an online system for it. They rushed that system to production and we've seen issues. We've seen bugs with that. There's other places that, that have to put up messaging around it or, or different ways. So I think that there's a lot of companies out there that have, have rushed to production to relate to this. And, and I'm not in any way vilifying those companies. You're doing what it takes to make sure your services are still available. And I think that we're all a little bit more tolerant around that. But so now this has happened. There's this tech debt. There's this bug debt that's out there. And this is a question that, that testing has always been to struggle with. So I want your genius answers. Um, what, can, what can people do to help mitigate the fact that they now have this bug debt? Yeah, I've seen a lot of this going on. In fact, my wife works for Department of Health and they've been working around the clock trying to get some new technologies out so that people can check the COVID test results and stuff like that, like all the cutting edge stuff that we weren't prepared for as public health entities and, and so on. So they're really rushing stuff and pushing stuff into production. But yeah, once you have those defects out there, 
I, I think at that point, what you want is you want to be able to rapidly fix and do a thorough job testing after fixes are applied in basically real time, because you're going to be applying a lot more fixes rapidly as people are uncovering stuff. And you're not just going to have your testers reporting defects. You're going to want to have channels for the general public to log defects uh, of your system. Unfortunately, that's the reality, right? Instead of all your testing happening internally, you're going to get defects raised outside a lot more frequently. So I think good communication from external public channels inward, you're going to want to have a quick turnaround in terms of bug fixing, rapid regression testing. So maybe automated testing solutions could be helpful there, stuff like that. So a couple of things to do after the fact is one, if you've rapidly pushed stuff through and skip steps, make sure that you're going back and syncing your environments so that when something is found, you can try and reproduce it on an environment where you can actually debug it. In the same way, I also think that redirecting or upping the access for your testers so that they can try and reproduce things in production that people are seeing so they can understand it better, so they can try and reproduce it in a, in a more debuggable environment, that can also help. And I think that's a better way of reacting, especially when we've just been forced to do that. I think the big thing is just to thank those that while they have created some technical debt, it was important for society that we didn't completely stop. So I, I totally understand they did what they needed to do to get things running. There is a time as things slow down that they need to understand and go back and look and say, okay, how much risk did we put into our business overall and start to tackle the risk items that they put in earlier than later so that it doesn't overly tarnish their brand long-term because people are forgiving now, but getting those items fixed and the right priority is going to be important coming out of this. Yeah, I think some additional items that from a technical debt perspective, so you might have functionally verified it, but the likelihood that you did accessibility testing on it or performance testing, or maybe you just skipped some of the security testing that you might do. So key is to get the functionality out, get that ironed out, but then you've probably omitted those. So going back as soon as possible to address the gaps in your testing program. Or uh, or documenting that it, that those holes exist so that you do that diligence at some point. The, so this is something that I used to do when I worked at a, a relatively volatile corporation where we, we pushed stuff all the time, was if we pushed a patch or a hotfix, I never really understood the difference between those two things, but if we, if we pushed a patch or a hotfix to make sure that customers could continue with their experience, I always went back and had a discussion. So we did some testing. We, we did some sanity testing to make sure it wasn't going to destroy things and that the fix worked, but never enough testing to be safe. I always went back to the developer who was involved in producing the patch and I said, and, and you have to be really careful, you have to be um, non-judgmental and accepting. I said, great, we got that out, that fixed them, awesome. Can we spend 10 minutes talking about what you did to see if we've imparted extra risk because we didn't think about all the permutations? And developers, of course, are really good at understanding what it is that they have done. And so having that conversation can help you understand, oh, my gosh, should I do some extra testing now in this specific area, even though it's on production? Because there's some potential deadly paths that we ignored uh, due to speed. Yeah, like additional backlog uh, of testing items, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's another idea is, is to make sure just because you got that into production and saved time in doing it, well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't allocate time for the full testing to happen at some right. point. Right, and I think that's how you avoid the 
it's technical debt and it's there forever, right? Is track it and then start getting into your future roadmap as to no, we're going to take a little bit of extra time in this sprint or this release to make sure that we test that accessibility on that yeah. piece. And I don't think it's always going to be because teams are rushed. I think there's some complications yeah. that yeah. came about from being remote too. Like let's say you normally have a lab that's well stocked for doing your testing. And then at home, all you have is maybe a small subset of operating systems or a subset of browsers at your disposal or mobile devices. Or even like, you know, if you've got a mixed hardware software product, maybe you don't have all of the permutations of the devices that you're used to testing on. And so all of that stuff needs to be accounted for. One of the things I think that that uh, testers are fast embracers of is, is collaboration tools like Zoom and Slack and and et cetera. And I think we're quite willing to do those things. And we're also generally the first people in a team to embrace process. I don't think that's a problem. But and and I don't know that there's going to be a lot of discussion around this, but uh, maybe just some thoughts. I think now is the time that if as a tester, you haven't been looking at your code repository stuff, if, if that's always been, oh, that's what the developers work on. But because you're disconnected now, because you're not seeing people in the, as often in the same way, understanding your code check-in process, where the code is, what the state is of in the, in the build process, I think is, is more important. So I'm not asking you to become a full automator tomorrow or the owner of the CI pipeline. I just think adding your literacy around the build process is good when you are separated. Does that make sense? Yeah, most definitely, right? If testers, and they understand how it all works, right? But if they start seeing notes coming out saying, this module is going into this next release and this is, they understand what's generally in those and can then again go and focus their efforts and say, okay, I need to make sure I pay a little bit more attention in this area um, because I know that this component's changed. Um, that oftentimes what we get is uh, these features are in this release, we need to test it. So digging down a level deeper and sort of understanding that um, will help sort of pick up some of those communication gaps that can exist in an environment like this. Yeah, sort of let's let's assume that communication is all great. Let's also add some safety. Yeah, exactly. Nat, did you have any thoughts? Um, no, I think it all it all matched up. I was trying to think about that. You know, as as recent projects and issues arise, I think, yeah, you've got, you know, certain developers have a tendency to make the same mistakes over and over. So yeah, even monitoring who checked in the last build, then you can check for certain issues right out of the gate. But I think generally testers need to be have a better understanding of the check-in process, the code review, the, you know, what happens after a, a build and where it gets pushed, the timing of those things, how frequently it's changed, are there proper uh, notes describing what was changed uh, being put in. I think the days of, of testers just waiting for stuff to be thrown up into an environment and be told exactly what to look for. I mean, I don't think we need to be as passive as we used to be. The tools provide a lot of that, those mechanisms to add comments on a commit. And so there's no reason why a tester can't look at that. The developers are. Why not have the testers do that too? So complete agreement there. Awesome. So, so what I'd, I'd like to put a call out to our listeners is that I have not researched, and, and Nat and, and John have not researched this, because again, this is sort of a brainstorming conversation. Are there any materials out there that help people who've never dealt with code repository tools, give them some basics like, hey, this is a, this is this guy put this up on YouTube. It's, it's the super basic way of how to understand GitHub or stuff like that. If you have any resources like that, 
can you uh, put them into one of our social channels, maybe into the into our Twitter feed, or or send them via our our PQA testing website, so that that we can pass that that along to the rest of our of our consumers. Promise that we will also spend some time on it. But if you have particular resources around that, that would be awesome if you could provide them. So maybe one one last point coming coming near to our wrap up time. So one last point that we could discuss is a lot of being socially distanced and remote and sitting in your home now is you don't necessarily have access to the same equipment that you always had. And I don't mean a laptop. Most testing can be done with a laptop. But we at, at PQA, we definitely have some clients that do a point of sale terminal testing. So access to that, we've got some lotto terminal testing. So that's physical access. And those companies have been working on that, but there's there's no amazing way if regularly in your job you go and test five different devices, um, and then couple that with something that that more of us will hit is is we have a device library in in multiple of our offices. The biggest one being in our in our home office in Fredericton. And when we test a particular website and they want these X number of devices tested, we have a drawer, series of drawers, cabinet. I haven't actually seen it. Um, where you go, you pick up the devices you need, you sign them out, you test with them, and then you go back and pick up the other devices that you need and you sign them out and you test with it. And so now we don't have that. So what we've done is we've taken those devices and sent them home with people. And so now those devices are distributed and we're doing our best to figure out how to, if I'm on project X and project Y needs this device, but I'm the person with that device, we're cross-sharing and collaborating on that, but not everyone's going to have that capability. Not everyone's going to have that access. Do you guys have any strategies that can help deal with that? I mean, I think you're you're going to have uh, a bit of technical debt accumulation here too, right? So I think one of the options that you might have is so where you might not have a physical device, there are cloud services where you can access mobile devices. There's cloud services where you might be able to access some of the common, certainly browsers and mobile devices. I'm not sure about, you know, any of the custom stuff, but you might use an alternative like that or an emulator so you can get some of your testing done. But yeah, I, I think you're going to create a bit of technical debt doing that. Um, and you're going to want to go back to the real devices. I mean, it's there's always differences in, in your testing program. You, John? Yeah, and it, so, so I think that's definitely one of them. Um, and we've always talked about, well, if we can test on the physical device, that is better than really, I always refer to it as testing on a piece of code that was written that you didn't actually test, right? So now I've got this extra layer in there that we didn't actually test. We don't know how it works, but it is definitely better than nothing. The point of sale systems are definitely a more unique one. But if we think about the mobile devices that we now have distributed across multiple employees, right? It, some of it goes back to how we started this whole conversation today around communication. So if I know that Mike has the iPhone that I need to test on, well, let me give Mike a call and say, Mike, let's work through this together. Maybe you can do some of that testing for me just so I can feel more comfortable. I've tested it through this emulator, but I want you to test a couple things for me, right? And sort of that collaboration across teams and members, I think is one way to help alleviate some of that technical debt, but uh, you are right. There's going to be some there that needs to be tracked. And as you go through releases sort of cleaned up over time, but I think that we've let ourselves be a little bit lazy from time to time in terms of, hey, we have these devices available. Let's not dig too far into how they're different or where the risk is because we have the devices. Let's just do the testing. And I think now is a good time for people to 
learn a bit deeper what the actual differences are in devices so that they know where the risks are. So that if you're going to borrow someone's time to test it on a device, because maybe if you're at a, at a different company, you're actually asking a developer to use their own personal device to test A, B, and C. Well, you need to know enough to do enough risk analysis to say that A, B, and C are specifically the things that I need to test with this device difference because that's the thing that's at risk. That's the thing that may cause me the problems. And so as a tester, learning better what the differences in devices are can help you mitigate some of that risk. And then, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Keeping track of what you have tested where so that you now have some technical debt around what you haven't tested and coming back when you have time or coming back when you have better access to those devices. And then absolutely, if you're not using emulators today, this all works together with that. Understand the difference between using an emulator and using a device. Those services are actually really good. And uh, you can talk to us to decide which services you might want to use that's better for yourself. Um, but those devices are really good as long as you understand what you get with the service and what it can tell you and what it can't tell you. So it's it's coming away from that being lazy and, hey, I just have a device, I should use it, and figuring out where, where you need to use it. I, and I think that's really common. I think most organizations include too much testing on like, compatibility with more devices than is really necessary from just a risk mitigation, because many devices use a lot of the same components out of the box. So, you know, when it comes to looking at a device, which processor, which, you know, peripheral version they're using, a lot of it doesn't matter for most of the software we're testing, but they still want to test every combination of device. But being a little more analytical when you're designing your testing program could go a long way here, for sure. Uh, cool. So I think we're, we're coming close to our, our wrap-up time. Um, maybe any final remarks that you want to make? What's the most important thing that sh people should be thinking about right now? Well, obviously, the, the big one right now is everybody stay safe. Working remotely is completely possible. It can be more effective in some places, but I think stay in touch both from a social perspective and from a getting through the testing work. We're always here to help if people need ideas or suggestions on how to do it. Nat, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, keep you, keep your kids occupied if you have kids because they can distract you and, and cause you to make uh, enforced errors in your, your work. So I'm learning when I need to focus on something that uh, I make sure my kids have something where they're not going to distract me in the middle of important tasks. So yeah, little, little tricks like that. I think at the end of the day, we have the ability to communicate and we can't forget that. We have all of the tools right in front of us and many of them we're not using to the best of our abilities, right? And so, you know, we can communicate in so many different ways with every platform that we use in every area of our, our business, whether it's quality assurance or test management tools. They all have little messaging capability, notifications. It's time to explore those features, make use of them. Yeah, just, it's super easy to just ping someone on Slack, set up a call or whatever, right? So don't hesitate, communicate, over-communicate. I don't know, Nat. Maybe you should leverage your kids more. It's like monkey testing, yeah, right? Yeah, Build them into the program. <laughs> Although reproducibility, <laughs> reproducibility goes way down, I think. Um, that's great. Uh, I think that from my own standpoint, I think one of the most important things beyond staying safe and being able to focus is upping your own powers of communication. It's making sure that you're talking a bit more about the things that, that you're doing, that you're working on, the needs you have. And when people are giving non-commutative answers, that you ask them a few more questions so that you get a little bit more information. Because uh, this is new to some people and, and it, uh, new technology like this can be a little off-putting 
And what we just have to do is get people used to that. And one of the best suggestions I've heard that I really like for people who are now working remotely and, and now collaborating and stuff like this is don't be afraid to share little personal tidbits. Send a picture of you doing something silly because that builds bonds, that builds communication faster than anything else. And if anything, what we need is people to be willing to be tolerant to understanding the person's tone. Because I mean, emojis can only take you so far to understanding when someone said X, they were actually being a little bit funny, right? So be forgiving and build those relationships because that's the easiest path. All right, so uh, I'm going to call this the uh, the end of this discussion. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, I think we uh, we did a pretty good job of, of helping people understand the problems that are out there. There's probably more problems. And we're happy to continue this conversation through one of our, our social channels like Twitter or uh, through our website. And we'd love your ideas. Um, as a company, of course, we're always available to help you with these things. And you can reach out to us for that as well. Rate and review this podcast in whatever platform you're consuming it. Um, that would be great. We'd love to get the feedback. We'd love to uh, figure out ways to improve so that you love us even more. So without further ado, please stay safe. Please stay distanced and uh, wash your hands a lot. Thank you, everyone.